The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Devon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 20th. Today, a military pullout from Syria, a defiant take on plus-size fashion, and a journey to the center of the earth. On Wednesday morning, President Trump announced plans to withdraw all U.S. troops from Syria. The reason, he said, is because we have defeated ISIS. I've been president for almost two years, and we've really stepped it up, and we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them, and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land, and now it's time for our troops to come back home. ISIS isn't defeated. ISIS still has a tiny little pocket of territory in southeastern Syria. It's been taking the U.S. much longer to defeat them there than they had intended. That's Liz Sly. And I'm the Beirut bureau chief for The Washington Post. And she's been reporting on the conflict in Syria, which began in 2011 after a government crackdown on peaceful protesters turned into a civil war. U.S. troops entered in 2015 under Obama to take back sections of the country under ISIS control. Right now, that U.S. presence is pretty limited. Liz says that it's somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000 troops. This very small presence is sort of just enough to kind of provide advice to the fighters on the front line with ISIS and to provide some sort of oversight of stability and to have a presence in some of the cities. But it is a very small presence. Even with such a limited presence, leaving Syria would be a big deal. The president's declaration is based on a very simple premise, that ISIS has been defeated in Syria, so now the U.S. gets to leave. But pretty much everyone else, even people usually in Trump's camp, like Republican lawmakers and Pentagon officials, they're almost all saying that this situation is still very precarious, and the departure of U.S. troops could have disastrous effects. So this decision is a disaster on multiple fronts, and I hope it can be changed. I believe it is a catastrophic mistake that will have grave consequences for the United States, for our interests, and for our allies. Among the very few leaders who think that this is a good idea, Russian President Vladimir Putin. I do generally agree with the President of the United States. We've achieved some major advances. The reason this could all be very bad is because of thousands of years of demographic complexity of that region. The majority of people in that part of the country are ethnic Arabs. But the much smaller Kurdish population, people that have long been oppressed by the Syrian president, they have the support of the U.S. And they're controlling the government in that region right now. You've got people, who, doubtless, who still support the Islamic State. And then you've got people who are very pro-American, who are mostly the Kurds. But then you've also got some factions within the Kurds who think the Kurds should never have gone with the Americans. 
And, of course, you've got ISIS, which remains at least somewhat of a threat. And you also have these competing interests of the Syrian government and Turkey and potentially Russia that would all like to exert their influence in the same part of the country where U.S. troops are currently stationed. Oh, and we mustn't forget the Iranians. They have militias and men backing up the Syrian government, which is something that Israel's very worried about. Given all that complexity, the fact that President Trump has announced that he's withdrawing U.S. troops without outlining any plan for how he's going to do that, it's struck some people as kind of weird. Well, it doesn't feel weird because this is Washington and with Trump in charge and this kind of thing happens all the time now, doesn't it? To do with something or another. Um, Trump did say last March, I'm pulling the troops out very soon. We're leaving right away. And the Pentagon said to him, no, you can't do that. We haven't finished defeating ISIS We've got to stabilize the area. And then he said, OK, we'll stay a bit longer. In September, the U.S. official said, no, actually, now we're going to stay indefinitely until there's a full settlement to stabilize the area. Trump's extreme enthusiasm to get out a year ago did make me wonder how long that would last, how long that plan would last. And I was not going to be surprised if in the coming six months or so he had announced a withdrawal after all. But I think coming quite so quickly after Deciding on the new policy is a bit of a shock. Just in the past few weeks, the United States has been widely and publicly briefing journalists, officials, foreign governments that they would be staying in Syria indefinitely, at least until there is a settlement to the Syrian problem that means they could hand the area over in a way that ensures that ISIS doesn't come back. It's absolutely clear that these areas don't have stability at the moment. You haven't got secure government. You haven't got a secure future And this encourages the return of ISIS by making people unhappy, by making people uncertain. And it it, it creates vacuums that they can sort of sneak back into. Well, so going back to the beginning of of the U.S. presence in Syria, what was their objective back then before things got much more complicated? Well, it all sort of began in 2014, 2015 with the fight against ISIS the Americans decided to go all in with the fight against ISIS and they sent special operations troops there to help the Kurds in this fight. They did this without thinking through the end game or having a plan for what they would do once ISIS was defeated. It was always clear that this is Syria. It's going to be very complicated. I think back in 2014, 2015, the assumption of the Obama administration was that by now Assad would have been defeated or at least forced to make compromises at the peace process, which the Americans are pushing. In fact, we're three, four years down the line, and Assad has practically won back the whole country. ISIS is also almost defeated. And you've got Americans sort of stuck in control of this big area. What will it mean for Syria that Americans are pulling out when no part of that endgame has actually been achieved? Well, the Syrians will be delighted because they've always said the American presence is completely illegal and they've made some vague threats that they will eventually use force to get rid of at least of Kurdish rule there and by effectively the Americans too because they don't want Americans occupying their country and of course they are on the opposite side of the whole global divide that's arisen over Syria. So the Syrians will be delighted. Now, whether they have the capacity to immediately move in and take these areas is a bit in doubt because you'll have the Turks also poised on the border wanting to make sure that they bring the Kurds under their thumb. So you could have a bit of a race to control this area between the Syrians and the Turks. And with America sort of kind of out of the picture and sort of devoid of influence over the whole landscape now, 
Russia will probably play a big part in sorting out what happens between those two powers. So the departure of these troops kind of leaves a vacuum. Oh, it leaves a huge vacuum. Yes, yes. Huge vacuum over a third of Syria. And of course, this is very likely if there's any chaos or confusion or no immediate restoration of authority by one power or another in a clear and substantive way, it does open the door for the Islamic State to come back. And if you remember, this group emerged and took over all this territory in the vacuum that occurred after the Syrian government was being defeated or pushed out of towns and villages by Syrian rebels who were trying to get rid of Assad. If we do see this kind of rise in violence in that area in coming months and years with U.S. troops no longer in that part of Syria, do you expect that any of that will blow back on America or on the U.S. military or on President Trump? You know, the fact that he's proclaimed that ISIS is defeated and everything's fine and we're ready to go when, in fact, things might not be fine? Well, if ISIS stages a huge comeback, say, before the 2020 election, and there are attacks in America and attacks in Europe, and they're seen to be taking over the territory that the Americans had taken back and then handed back, obviously that is going to reflect very, very badly on the president and the White House. I'm not sure they can actually stage such a huge comeback in such a short space of time. But, you know, they're really unpredictable. ISIS isn't a brand new thing. It's an outgrowth of the Iraqi insurgency, which began in 2003. It's proved itself to be very, very resilient. It's undergone many manifestations and changes of identity. So I think all bets are off, and it really is a whole new moment of uncertainty, at least for this corner of the Middle East, that could drag in other parts of the Middle East into something wider. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Liz. Thanks for having me. months ago, I was shopping for clothes online, and I came across this ad. It was on the website of Universal Standard, a plus-size fashion line, a company that I shop at. And the photo was of a model, a black woman in a white tank top and white underwear and little white socks. And she's a size 24, which for plus-size brands like Universal Standard is around the higher end of the sizes that they cater to. It wasn't like any other ad that I've ever seen, because it was so clearly making a statement. She's standing sideways with her hands on her hips, her hair is kind of frizzy, and a little bit of her stomach is exposed, and she has this defiant expression, like, I dare you to call me fat. I was really into it. Robin Gavon, a Pulitzer Prize-winning fashion critic here at The Post, she also saw that ad. And she ended up writing a column about it. It was almost like they were introducing a new kind of fashion language. And I wasn't sure that I really understood it. I wasn't sure precisely of what they were saying. It wasn't a pretty photo. It didn't seem to be a polished photo. It was, like, defiantly raw. And do you think that that's part of the point? I think that is absolutely the point. But my question was, is it necessary to make that point? Robin's column asked these big questions about how the fashion industry has portrayed its own foray into the plus-size market. 
And if they're more focused on plus-size models as high fashion or on using these models to shock and to make some kind of bigger declaration. And the column ended up getting a really strong reaction, with readers leaving many, many comments. When I last looked, it was in the thousand range. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because when I think about what has turned me off about the branding of plus-size fashion for so long is that I often feel like the ads that you see of these women are sort of like Xanax ads, where like <laughs> everyone is just like smiling and they're in fields and they're wearing flowery dresses. Whereas when I first saw the Universal Standard website and, and saw the models and, and the images of the models, you know, it had this like edgy, raw, like, we're here to kick butt. But it sounds like you're saying that maybe those campaigns, at least for some people, go too far in a direction of defiance rather than creating an image that is one that people kind of aspire to. Yeah, I feel like it's a really complicated sort of minefield of cultural issues, social issues, and just our own personal baggage that we bring to um, the table whenever we start talking about body shape and size. And part of what was striking to me about the universal standard image and its extreme rawness was that it was also sort of playing in the fashion field. And it was unclear to me if you're going to play in that fashion field, which is considered to be this place of aspiration and fantasy and this idea that you can sort of be whoever you want to be by just slipping on this dress or this pair of pants or this pair of shoes, that it seemed to be stripping all of that away. And that's an interesting argument. That's an interesting point. But I think that there is a way to speak in a manner that welcomes everyone into the fold in a way that feels much more organic and honest without being exaggerated. So you write this story, mm-hmm. and then you get a response from people who yeah. read your stories. Can you talk a little bit about that response? Yeah. I mean, I tried very, very carefully to choose each word with great intent because I knew that there were going to be people who would probably disagree. And what I was really struck by was in the world of social media, which we often think is this terrible cesspool of commentary, people were actually far more nuanced in their comments. And most of them were really quite positive, just in terms of, yeah, you know what, it's time for fashion to stop holding up plus size women as proof of their diversity. And to just like, let these women just exist on their own terms. But then when I looked at the emails that were sent to me, which I now equate with sort of old school letter writing, the comments there were much more negative. Negative how? They drifted into name calling of the women in the ads. There was one that really stood out and it was from a a man and it was a mashup of the word ghetto and hippopotamus. And he just wrote ghettopotamus. 
it really, I mean, my mouth fell open as I was reading that. And I just thought, here is this person who does not know this woman, who has no stake in this woman's daily life and has felt the need to hurl such just a vulgar term into the world through my email at her. I just thought it speaks volumes to the level of discourse that happens around plus-size women and particularly plus-size women of color. I went into your story and I started reading the comments at the top. And then after I read five, I had to, like, put it away because it was yeah. so, so unconscionable. And someone on Twitter had said to me that usually she doesn't argue for reading the comments on stories because they can be very disheartening, but that if you are not a fat person, as she put it, you should read them because it will give you a sense of the kind of prejudices, insults, racist comments, just the entire panoply of insults that are directed at plus-size women on a regular basis. And one of the lead ones is always, oh, well, you're unhealthy, as if to suggest that, well, one, a person can't be both concerned about their weight and perhaps their health, maybe, but also want clothes that look great on them. And there's also this presumption that, you know, you know something about this person's health. Mm -hmm. And it just, it feels like this sort of backhanded faux concern that is really just a giant insult. Well, I think those kinds of comments speak to what makes your column so compelling. And I think, honestly, like why I end up coming down a little bit differently from you, just because like you see how violently the world reacts to large women to fat women, especially women of color. Yeah. And the only reaction that you can have to that is one of defiance and aggressive statements of, I am here and you better deal with it. And it feels like the world hasn't yet created a place where a size 24 woman like this woman, especially a size 24 black woman, can wear any type of clothes that people will be like, wow, she looks lovely. Well, and that was part of the conversation that I had with Universal Standard founders. You know, I said to them, I know you're prepared for this, that argument that you are celebrating or glorifying someone who is arguably very overweight. And their response was, there's a difference between celebrating and representing. And I think to some degree, part of the reason for, you know, the rawness of the photograph is that this is not a glossed over celebration. It is simply a, hello, I am here and I have a right to be here. And at the end of the piece, the thing that I sort of was pondering during the entire writing process was really, when does it get to a point where a woman of this size does not have to stand in her underwear and say, yeah, I deserve to be here? And I think we're still such a long way from that point. Hopefully, you know, we will get there, but I think it'll be a very uncomfortable journey. Robin Gavon writes about fashion for The Post. You can find her story and the ad that inspired it at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports.
And now, one more thing. Right now, as Congress wraps up for the year, President Trump is threatening a government shutdown if legislators don't agree to fund a border wall. It's been a very tumultuous way to end the current congressional session. But this is not the first time that Congress has been pushed to support a grandiose pet project. In fact, that's kind of what happened in the 1820s, in a story we hear from Post Reports producer Ted Muldoon. Let me take my ID tag off. Jingle, jingle. Betty Coed is the U.S. Senate historian. I can tell you one of my favorite Senate stories. We had a senator from Kentucky named Richard Mentor Johnson, who actually went on to become vice president at one point, but he was still in the Senate at this time, in the 1820s. And there was a theory championed by a man named James Simpson, I think his name was. Actually, his name was John Sims. But and you, you're going to love this story. Still a great story. Anyway, there's a guy named John Sims. He theorized that the Earth was hollow and that there was actually an interior to the Earth that was habitable. Simpsonia, he called it. And he believed that if we could get to the inner part of the Earth, we would find people living there and animals and vegetation and all this kind of stuff. This is 44 years before Jules Verne wrote his book, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Same idea. Earth is hollow. Things are in it. And his theory was that if you could get to the North Pole, you would find this big hole where you could go in and go down and travel into the center of the Earth. Well, this man... John Sims. ...did lectures and stuff and popularized this idea. And at one point, it came to the attention of Richard Mentor Johnson, who was a bit of an eccentric in many ways. And he actually introduced to the Senate the idea that the Senate should fund an exploration that would send people to the North Pole to go through the hole and explore the center of the Earth. Now, he introduces this proposal to the Senate, which they thought would require reindeers and sleighs and things like this. And the Senate referred it to the Committee on Foreign Relations. (laughs) The Committee on Foreign Relations considers it and then sends it back out to the Senate for a full vote. And something like 20 senators voted in favor of funding this expedition. But... 22 or 24 voted against it, and so it eventually went down. When the Scott expedition and all those people went to the North Pole in the early 20th century, I don't think they ever found the hole. (laughs) But there were diagrams of it published in scientific journals. that's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. If you liked what you heard on this episode, it would be great if you took a second to leave us a review or to tweet about the show with the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. 
put our strategic investing approach to work for you.